Uh, hey guys, before we get started with this week's episode, we just want to do a public service announcement for our friends at the Nature Foundation of Wintergreen. Their annual wildflower symposium is coming up in May on the 13th, 14th, and 15th. Uh, Wintergreen Nature Foundation is located near Nellie's Ford, Virginia, up at Wintergreen. And the Wildflower Symposium uh, is a wonderful time. They've got a whole bunch of naturalists and scientists and ecologists and general beautiful nature geeks who are going to hang out and do knowledge. Uh, the theme this year is When Nature Springs to Life. Uh, it's a ton of fun. They've got, it's more than just wildflowers. They've got a ton of botanists, but also bird watchers and soil scientists and ecologists, and I think Charlie and Nina are both doing something with soil and mushrooms. We will be there possibly doing a talk on starting your own nature podcast, so that'll be fun. But anyway, check it out. It's May 13th, 14th, and 15th at Wintergreen. All right. By the seat of our plant skateers, uh, get ready for another enervating episode as we discover what our wacky band of misfits has up their pants today on By the Seat of Our Plants. Welcome to By the Seat of Our Plants. This is a, a Ben and Ben production this afternoon or evening or whenever you're listening to it. Um, we are here in uh, the Grayface Penthouse Studios tonight. <laughs> that makes it sound weird. <laughs> the, no, no, the, try. the Bent House. Bent House. <laughs> <laughs> That's worse. That's worse. Let's not call it any of those things. Welcome to By the Seat of Our Plants. <laughs> it's it's been a long day. I've been uh, I've been sticking. Uh, Sticking plugs of mycelium into uh, into oak logs all day today at Charlie's Mushroom Emporium at the farm. Um, so I'm pretty beat, but I'm never too tired for taxonomy. <laughs> yeah, as long as it's not too taxing. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's been a long day. I've been uh, working with greenery all day, making um, various decorations for the holiday seasons. So my fingers are thoroughly poked. Fortunately, my mouth is as fresh and firm as a Georgia peach, so. That's horrible. <laughs> um, oh, God. Now that we've assaulted the audience multiple <laughs> times. <laughs> what are we talking about today? What are we talking about today? We had some interesting things come up. Yeah, we did. We were talking about um, species and what the hell they are and where you can find them. What's a species, Ben? That is an awesome question. And if I were like a scientist, I would be like, blah, 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 giving the exact right answer. Well, I forgot to bring my scientist today. Yeah, sorry. I know it was on the list. Yeah, scientists didn't make it today. They never do because they're always going back to where they started, you know? Never get to that conclusion because they always got to go back and revise the fucking hypothesis. Scientists be iterating. It's like they're the a bunch of. <laughs> it's like they're a bunch of meth, method, uh, scientific meth. It actors, yes, very, exactly, exactly <laughs> like that. That's scientific. Good save. Uh, methodology. Oh, 
Okay. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> um, no, to answer your question, a species, I would, it's to, you know, obviously taxonomical term and it's a way of differentiating between types of living things. But what I don't know or understand is how they do that or why. Yeah. Well, species is a Latin word and it means it's a plural, which means there's more than one of it. Right. There's like a species. Yeah. Which is hard currency. So it means different types of heavy metals like, uh, like Ingve Malmsteen would be a species <laughs> and, and ACDC would be like a, a speciet. Uh, for instance, uh, no, yeah, species, species. Uh, right, it means right. a, it means a type of thing in Latin. I'm pretty sure it's a species is is any any kind of a kind of a critter, uh, a creature um, hmm. who is able to uh, to mate on another creature of the same type and and make a baby that can can mate with other babies of the same type that makes more babies. This is sounding more complicated than it actually is. It's, it's critters that make more critters of the same kind. Yeah. It's like Russian doll nesting, nesting dolls, basically. Exactly. But through time instead of space. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's an easy thing to hold in your mind. Mm -hmm. Cool. So like horses, a horse and a horse make more horses which make more horses, which make more horses, which right. make et cetera. That sounds so right. And a donkey and a donkey make more donkeys, which make more donkeys, which make more donkeys. Mm -hmm. Don and it's all donkeys all the way down. All the way down. Yeah. <laughs> On the elephants <laughs> uh, or turtles or whatever. Where does the sea of milk come in? You know, warm hands. Is that donkey? And, and all those donkeys. Donkey. <laughs> <laughs> Just make sure you're grabbing the right. Anyway, uh, <laughs> But a, a horse and a donkey, when you put them together, you end up with a good time. And also, uh, <laughs> I mean, if you're a, a horse or a donkey, I don't know, maybe they're whatever, whoever's more into it or both of them are into it. Probably both of them, I guess. I don't know. You yeah. end up with a mule or a hinny. And I, you put a mule and a mule together or a hinny and a hinny together or a mule and a hinny together and you end up with maybe a good time, maybe a bad time, but no more mules and no more hinnies. And that means that... Horses are a species and donkeys are a species, but they're not the same species. I'm explaining this very poorly. Right no, now. no, I think, I think I got it now. So if what they produce can produce more of themselves, then yeah. they're a species. Yeah, that's it. Got it. And Easy. An, and an endangered species is, there's not very many of them left to make more of themselves, right? Hmm. By law. Right. Yeah. It's been, it's been determined. Right. By whom? The authorities, don't worry about it. They know what they're doing. <laughs> so, okay. That's cool for animals, like horses and donkeys. But when it gets to plants, the concept of species starts to, uh, to, you know. Branch out or, you know. Yeah. I mean, if you want to, you know, put it right on the nose like that, I yeah. guess. Yeah. I was going to use a plant, plant term too. Uh, I mean, I guess yeah, it's not. Just get right to the root of the matter, I suppose. <laughs> I liked what you were doing. Let's get back to your, because that was a good explanation. Definition of a species is a little more clear with mammals, maybe. Right. Um, and it gets more complicated when we get into the quote unquote plant world. Right. 
And why this is, is a matter for somebody who knows a lot more multisyllable words than, than me, certainly, to explain. Mm. But um, plants, plants are way more... What's the technical word for will fuck anybody? <laughs> pansexual? There you go. Is that pansexual? No, I think pansexuals will fuck anything. Ah, yeah. Or anybody. Yeah, well, I mean, we're all... Omnisexual, uh, I think, maybe. Omnisexual, we'll fuck yeah, yeah. Um, we're going to get so many emails about this. We are. When Don't. we set up an email account. Uh, so, yeah, uh, plants will fuck each other and then produce viable offspring all the goddamn time. So there's a phenomenon that uh, that horticulturalists utilize all the time to make tomatoes that grow really fast and big. That's known as hybrid vigor. Mm -hmm. And that's where you take two different cultivars or strains, if you're talking about, you know, artificial uh, subspecies, or two different species. Like, for instance, around here, there's uh, what five or six different species of wild rise, which is, uh, for those of you keeping score at home, the genus Elymus or Elymus. Um, there is, let me see if I can remember them all. It's like the seven dwarves. Uh, I know Hystrix. I got that one. There you go. Yeah, Elymus Hystrix, the bottle brush grass, mm -hmm. glass, whatever. Uh, Elymus riparius, riverbank wild rye. Uh, Elemis glabrifloris, that's upland wild, wild rye. Elemis mcgregorii, um, mcgregor's wild rye. Oh, Connor mcgregor? Connor mcgregor, oh, yeah. the Scottish uh, whiskey distiller. Yeah. Who used really small grains to do it. <laughs> small grains <laughs> mcgregor, they called him. Uh, and Elemis canadensis, uh, mm. probably Canadian wild rye, I'm going to guess. Probably, yep. name, Or northern wild rye or something like that. There's mm -hmm. you know, probably about half a dozen more on top of that. And the crazy thing is they will all intergrade, which is to say when you've got a stand of uh, Elemis hystrix next to a stand of Elemis canadensis, you'll see some plants that look a whole heck of a lot like what the big book says uh, Elemis canadensis looks like, and then some that look like what the floor of Virginia says Elemis hystrix looks like. And then in the middle, you have all of these, you know, weird uh, redheaded stepchildren that kind of look a little bit like both. Mm. So all of those intermediaries, they're all viable. They'll all produce offspring most of the time, you know, for some of these grades, uh, you know, right. for Elemis, for instance, those, those hybrids will often uh, grow really, really well. You'll often see the ones in the middle of the stand actually looking taller and the um, the grains looking thicker if it's seed season, the, the leaves looking lusher. Um, and it's this weird phenomenon in, in botany known as hybrid vigor, where when you have two different species or cultivars together, uh, their offspring will often be, for that one generation, way more robust and quick growing than either of the parents. Why? Wow. Uh, science, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Chalk that up to uh, mysteries in nature. So, <clears throat> so at that point, are they? Is there a new level of classification for them, or is that just sort of like it's all in the wash of that's a species? Like at that point, like in in between Hystrix and mm -hmm. yeah, the Conor McGregor one, um, <laughs> is there? You know, say there's seven in betweens on a spectrum between mm -hmm. there. Are those all just counted as Elemis at that point and? And there's no real specificity given to them, or are they just sort of likened to what they seem to look like the most based on what their original parents were? Like, how do how does that break down? 
Well, they're definitely not lichen because that is a particular type of hybrid okay. organism of fungus. Sorry, you walked right into that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, fuck. Uh, yeah, technically it's noted as, um, it would be noted as uh, Elemis McGregorii, little, little capital, she guess is lowercase, X, uh, <laughs> Elemis. Little capital. <laughs> Long day, I don't know how, like, <laughs> don't know how writing works. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's called an intergrade, I think. Okay. Uh, they're not necessarily totally stable hybrids, which is to say a hybrid that then reproduces itself and looks basically like the parent plant, like the offspring of that look like, some of them look more like um, Elemis canadensis, some of them would look more like Elemis megregorii. Mm. You know, some of them have those, if there's some Elemis hystrix in there, they've got those, those bushy-ass, you know, wide, yeah. wide uh, bristles in there. Yeah. So in plants, kind of species, in addition to meaning, you know, the, the, the textbook definition of, you know, group a group of organisms that can mate with each other and produce viable offspring are also means a group of organisms that mate with each other and produce something that kind of sort of looks like the parents most of the time. But it's also viable. But it's also viable. Right. Exactly. That's the thing. Even if it also happens to go ahead and mate with some other things that other people that don't necessarily look like the parents and also produce viable offspring. That's a gray area. Hmm. Weird. Yeah. So when we're talking about, you know, looking towards the future in particular with the idea of protecting or preserving plant species per se, there's some options and opportunities there that might not be present in a situation where uh, the only viable population is that which you know resembles completely the parent so for instance mm. with elemis uh elemis riparius as conditions say dry up in a riverbed elemis riparius per se might find it harder to live mm -hmm. however if there's a stand of elemis glabrifloris the upland wild rye which can tolerate drier conditions that's just a couple feet up on the bank from the elemis riparius the grandchildren of Elemis riparius, which used to live on the riverbanks, can survive, mm -hmm. you know, mixed in with the grandchildren of the Elemis glabrifloris up there in the dry hillsides, which are, you know, burning now or whatever. Interesting. Survive in when you say grandchildren, like they've crossed genes at that point, like. Yeah, grandma, grandpa, you know, X number of generations back. It's that lineage, you know, that history, that family. You know, just because it's a different species doesn't mean they don't still have family ties, right? Yeah. Are you implying that there's a bit of, like, selection for, um... A kind of natural selection, <laughs> if you will? It's like a selective force, like, in nature, you know? Like, <laughs> this is a really good idea. It's new. Patterson's theory of natural selectivity <laughs> yeah. in Na nature. Nature's, nature's select, you know, yeah. is what you would call that grain. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, that's, I think, part of how that works. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so total digression. Um, natural selection, right? Uh, the yeah. idea that, um, that the, uh, the individual that is best equipped to survive in the current generation is going to have, um, more likely to have offspring that have the traits that enable the parent to survive well in the present generation and future generations and so on and so forth. I'm trying to figure out a way to integrate a critique of 
Darwin's intrinsic Malthusianism and the uh, the synthesis presented by Alfred Russell Wallace, which wasn't accepted by the general scientific establishment at the time because of his left wing politics and oh uh, classic um, getting railroaded yeah because he was mean, a commie. Uh, it was a well that equivalent. I mean, he was a he was a suffragette suffragist, I guess, because he was a dude. But he was all for uh, expanding the vote to Suff- suffragio. <laughs> suffragio. <laughs> Suffragillo. <laughs> Alfred Russell Wallace. Suffragio. They don't get names. Let's be honest. Like dudes who who advocated for the right for women to vote don't have like a name. Like there's no equi- male equivalent of suffragette. What yeah. is that? What's that term? I mean, there's there's just. Nobody active for men's rights per se. <laughs> you could say anywhere on the internet right now. Where who will who will be the lone voice in the wilderness for this? Uh... It's tough to be a man these days. <laughs> it's tough to be a white dude. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, old, old Alfie boy did get railroaded. That's for sure. Was what was so? What was Wallace's you know contribution to that? So Wallace and Darwin were in were in. Um, correspondence for you know most of their professional lives well professional i mean they were both kind of professional dilettantes i mean they were they were rich kids who were you know into dicking around in the woods which is you know that's fine i mean if you're gonna have a zillion the equivalent of uh of a billion dollars and which was uh, like 150 pennies back then penny farthings yeah (laughs) yeah it was a really inconvenient currency i mean though very mobile um, yeah, they used to have the those old penny splitting machines for when they needed to buy smaller amounts of things. Pay for your hogshead of, uh, you know, parsnips or whatever. Uh, so Alfred Russell Wallace had the idea of, um, and I'm I'm forgetting his his official 18th century name for it, but you know, basically he he looked at evolution. So everybody knows Darwinian evolution, right? Yeah, I'm I've been waiting for the right time to bring this. I'm cutting off again oh, to bring this it, in, but I haven't finished reading this fucking article yet in the New York Review of Books. But it's called Nature's Evolving Tastes, um, and it's basically about um, Darwin assuming an irreducible mutual interconnectedness between nature and culture. Um, and uh, it has to do with his various skirmishes with other thinkers of the time. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling like Wallace is about to come up in this, so oh, that's, that's partially why I'm so interested in this. I mean, if you just want to pick up where you where you left off reading, and we'll just read it on the air. Darwin's idea of animal aesthetics suggests a theory of evolution. Darwin assumed an irreducible mutual interconnectedness between nature and culture, that is, between the phenomena of the physical world and the beauty and meaning that living beings purposefully create. Accordingly, he treated science as one mode of cultural interpretation among others, a powerful, important one, to be sure, but not a pure one. Rather than aiming for purity, Science can aspire to self-awareness and engagement in a larger project of understanding. You know, there's a particular literary genre that I find especially grating, and it's listening to Is it this one? trust fund people talking about other trust fund people. <laughs> and I don't know why. Maybe it's just my underdeveloped uh, proletarian mind here that just uh, cannot grasp the, uh, the subtleties and rebels against the, <laughs> the discourse of my betters. But right. Man, yeah. fuck that noise. Anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, so Malthus. Yeah. I don't really want to talk about him. He's an asshole. You can look him up. Uh, he posited the idea that 
poor people were poor because they basically sucked and rich people were rich and had all the stuff because they were inherently awesome. Right. Natural selection on a, because of capitalism. Right. That yeah. capitalism was a manifestation of natural law and not <laughs> yeah. historical. Oh my fucking God, dude. I just got <laughs> so tired and sick in my, oh, it's so exhausting. Mm. Just that is so like alive in our world right now in everybody's mind, like some level of acceptance of that complete any shit. Yeah, the divine right of kings, right? Like, you know, right. this person is in can issue a fiat which makes you starve or live because the deity of choice of this particular nation state, well, not nation state, of this particular uh, kingdom, gives them carte blanche to do so. Right. And we all agree that that's pretty dumb, and we don't really ascribe to that anymore. You know, all surviving monarchs in, you know, the Eurosphere are pretty well pent in by constitutional monarchies at this point, you know, more or usually less democratic in nature. However, when we apply that to actual loci of power, you know, there's a great deal of fetishization of power for its own sake, more or less. Mm. What makes the sort of people who blow up a bunch of rockets on the launching pad uh, as technological geniuses right. who deserve their <clears throat> three-letter agency monies. But that is beyond the purview of this botanical podcast. Yeah, I, I might be. I'm maybe. I'm feeling like that that sort of angle is really relevant to the conversation about Darwin and Malthus, right? Mm. And you know, that's how we see that playing out mm. now in our lives with um you know, un unnamed weirdly haircutted um, <laughs> spacefarers, you know. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting to draw a line between those kind of figures and that, like the like modern day zillionaire space race mm -hmm. and this taxonomical system that we're sort of digging into. You know, our understanding of this force of natural selection. Yeah, totally. Because both the framework for how we understand the natural world was basically cobbled together by dilettante natural philosophers, you know, in their spare time, you know, between bitching out the people who were trimming the privet leading up to their second mansion. Um, <laughs> or, no, I don't actually have a second half to that, that sentence. I was going to say brunch. brunch. The second half is brunch. There we go. Yeah. Uh, you know, whether or not to cut the crust off the cucumber sandwiches. I mean... <laughs> Uh, yeah, and so like, uh, did this Darwin whole invent Uncrustables? Is that what you're telling me right now? Uh, definitely not a crusty dude. <laughs> not not an inch of crust. He was a he was a dapper little Fauntleroy from I birth mean, to death. Even on the, I mean, for God's sake, his ship was named the Beagle. Oh, I mean, if he invented Uncrustables, that dude was light years ahead of his time. Yeah, because that's something that we're like just getting back to as a culture mm -hmm. and as a society. Like our reverence for Uncrustables has been lacking, like basically my whole life. I don't remember my parents telling me about Uncrustables. Like it's fucked up. Yeah. Now I mean it's like that pro crust cabal that controls the media, you know, and the banks is like <laughs> they'll just chop your legs off, man. <laughs> Oh, some classic <laughs> scholar out there will appreciate that. Oh, uh, yeah, not me. <laughs> not this guy. No, I cut you off. Yeah, okay, Malthus. yeah, so Malthus, yeah, yeah, Malthus, yeah. Fuck, fucking Thomas Malthus. Yeah. 
Thomas fucking Malthus, man. Um, so, you know, Malthus obviously didn't invent social inequity. He just really helped to justify it in the popular consciousness of, you know, the people who want to believe in that stuff. He was the first means tester. Well, probably oh, not the first, but like, okay. yeah, you yeah. know, one of the sort of people who's just like, well, you need to make sure you're a responsible citizen, uh, you know, corresponding to your natural law, you know, whatever. Just look up Thomas Malthus. You'll learn. Oh, no, no. Yeah. You wouldn't learn about him. I um, don't want I don't even want to. Yeah. Uh, but Charles Darwin, uh, despite uh, being descended from Erasmus Darwin, uh, social libertine and uh, general gadfly of society, um, was really taken with this Malthus chap was like, yeah, man, there's some, some, you know, absolutely fixed rules in society. I totally deserve all of these acres and servants and such. <laughs> like there's nothing, this guilt. I feel there's, there's probably something that's not having to do with my material conditions. That's the cause of that. Hey, everybody, let's go to South America and look <laughs> at tortoises. Uh, so, you know, Darwin's whole notion of why, why children are not like their parents, basically, um, had to do with individual fitness, the idea that the individual mm. is in competition with their neighbors. And, you know, honestly, if you read the original Darwin, which for my sins I have, he wasn't quite as cutthroat as his modern day um, adherence, that horrible, idiotic Richard Dawkins chap oh, um, and, and his ilk. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so Darwin was at, at the idea that... Uh, <laughs> That the only the individual mattered basically that it was it was right. a a competition the idea of um, um, natural selection through competitive advantage that mm -hmm. two organisms would duke it out that Elemis riparius this particular Elemis riparius would duke it out with another Elemis riparius or maybe an Elemis glabrifloris and one of them would win by making a baby in a place. And the other would lose by making a baby who, you know, died or was eaten or making no babies at all. And they are the, the losers of history. They're, that nature is a zero-sum game. Yeah. That is, in some ways, teleological in effect, if not in intent. That it is perfecting through iterative um, challenge. That those whom survive... Sorry, I can't do grammar. Yeah, it's not whom there. It's those who survive. Thank you. Yeah. In some way deserve it because of their natural inherent fitness, which right. might be due to luck. Like they might just be that one particular strand of grass that didn't get flattened by, um, you know, a deer that was walking through or whatever. Right. Which is like if you would just acknowledge that luck is part of what you're communicating when you use the term fitness, mm -hmm. then okay. Like you, you know, if you want to open up fitness a little bit more, I'm yeah. down, but if you're calling fitness is all just individual merit and you're going to throw out your invisible hand. You're going to throw out all the material conditions that contribute to people's circumstances. And then no, fuck you. Like that's bullshit. You know, like <laughs> yeah. uh, you got to include the randomness of this world and this universe that we live in. And to his credit, you know, old, old Chaz Darwin really did. Uh, you know, he included stochastic elements into his understanding of what makes it. That was what made it, um, in contrast to what I literally just said, because I was wrong before and I'm absolutely right now. I swear, uh, you know, evolution is non-teleological. It is not moving towards a perfect form. It's not moving towards anything. It's just life responding to challenge over time. Yeah. And, you know, life, uh, finds a way. And you know who, who, 
who where that idea came from old alfie fucking wallace man Mm. because alfred wallace's idea was of the fitness of the community not of the individual he integrated symbiosis into his understanding of what drove change over generations Mm. so his concept of it sounds like it's almost like collectivism versus individualism it is exactly cultural i mean and that is the political dynamic at play there really yeah between darwin's um elitism and alfred russell wallace's you know socialism basically yeah that's another like, simplification like, they were both uh, you know little fauntleroys but still like, symbiotic like biological socialism like yeah right so wait so he, it was a word for it though it was the term for it though um it's it sounds way more like 1856 <laughs> that. it's like this is good i feel like we're setting it up to where we're not going to fall into race science too hard <laughs> like good call yeah but i feel like it's all about the entry you know like mm-hmm. you can talk about race science as long as it's not like whoops like we just stepped in that you know like <laughs> <laughs> yep in a letter published by the daily mail in 1909 with aviation in its infancy alfred russell wallace advocated an international treaty to ban the military use of aircraft arguing against the idea quote that this new horror is inevitable. I like but this all guy. we can do is to be sure and be in the front rank of the aerial assassins, for surely no other term can so fitly describe the dropping of, say, 10,000 bombs at midnight into an enemy's capital from an invisible flight of airships. I like this guy a lot. Yeah, Wallace is awesome. He's a, he's a legitimate historical figure to look up to. I am scanning this article mm. that I read from earlier. One of Lear's inventions was the Scroobius Pip, a creature that defies taxonomy, appearing to be neither fish, nor insect, nor bird, nor beast. That's amazing. Man. So February 1858, um, in Wallace's uh, autobiography. I don't know why I said it that way. Autobiography. (laughs) Autobiography. Autobiography. Graphy. The problem then was not only how and why do species change, but how and why do they change into new and well-defined species, distinguished from each other in so many ways? Why and how they become so exactly adapted to distinct modes of life? And why do all the intermediate grades die out, as geology shows they have died out, and leave only clearly defined and well-marked species, genera, and higher groups of animals? Hmm. Intergrade is is just a portmanteau of intermediary grades, isn't it? Yeah, so it's like like we're talking about with the with the Elemis, right? Those are all intergrades where you have right. Elemis hystrix and Elemis magregoria. So already Wallace is looking at the interstices between one form and another form over time, but through his understanding of biogeography, which he in the West anyway basically invented out of his own opinions on the space mm. not that other people who have been living in place places over time haven't but you know he had the dough to publish um also mm. was aware of was looking at it also in space so the idea of fluidity flexibility porosity as opposed to assuming that the individual's limits were him or her or themselves uh, as darwin did mm. so here's some more direct quotations from mr wallace It then occurred to me that these causes or their equivalents are continually acting in the case of animals also. And as animals, I mean, he was a zoologist, so by animals just breed organisms. And as animals usually breed much more quickly than does mankind, 
The destruction every year from these causes must be enormous in order to keep down the numbers of each species, since evidently they do not increase regularly from year to year, as otherwise the world would long ago have been crowded with those that breed most quickly. Hmm. But they had not discovered periods, or they were very scarce in uh, 1858. Well, they had to um, they had to ration them for a while. Yeah. During the war. So Eight semicolons in that. It Come occurred on. to me to ask the question, why do some die and some live? And the answer was clearly, on the whole, the best fitted lived. And considering the amount of individual variation that my experience as a collector had shown me to exist, then it followed that all the changes necessary for the adaptation of the species to the changing conditions would be brought about. In this way, every part of an animal's organization could be modified exactly as required, and in the very process of this modification, the unmodified would die out, and thus the definite characters and the clear isolation of each new species would be explained. <clears throat> Here we go. So, so stabilizing as opposed to directional selection is the, the formal kind of the formalizing of the distinction between Wallace's idea as opposed to Darwin's idea. Darwin oh, was a fan of directional selection right. of the individual, whereas Wallace was looking at the total community, which included the land, included other organisms. Again, he had an early understanding of symbiosis, which Darwin just like did not get the concept of cooperation as a basic natural, you know, phenomenon. Mm hmm. So again, this is from the, the 1898 or 1858 paper, uh, Wallace's words again, the actions of this principle is exactly like that of the centrifugal governor of the steam engine, which checks and corrects any irregularities almost before they become evident. And in like manner, no unbalanced deficiency in the animal kingdom can ever reach any conspicuous magnitude because it would make itself felt at the very first step by rendering existence difficult and extinction almost sure to follow. Do wish he was a better writer. Yeah. I was going to say, it's a bit of a dated analogy. Yeah. Like, I'm not like, oh, right. Yeah. The centrifugal governor. Every, so, every, every young kid's going to know about the centrifugal governor and the steam engine. So for those of you who don't have a steam engine. <laughs> We're going to uh, link to a. <laughs> a, a centrifugal governor is. Um, okay. So you know how cheese is made. <laughs> it's like that. But with steam. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and it's not actually circular, it's octagonal. But, you know, just keep that image in mind and you'll understand exactly what we're talking about. Yet the general aspect of the island is now so... Sorry, this is completely pointless. He's talking about uh, a Portuguese colony in, in St. Helena. Well, no, I mean, I think your point stands and is, you know, mm. I'm not sure about the steam engine part, but yeah, I, I think that's super fascinating. Yeah. Uh, here's another. I'm just going to keep on reading the man's own words because... It's, it's thick demonstration of these concepts. I thus learned my first great lesson in the inquiry into these obscure fields of knowledge, never to be accepted, the disbelief of great men or their accusations of imposture or imbecility, as of any weight when opposed to the repeated observation of facts by other men, admittedly sane and honest. The whole history of science shows us that whenever the educated and scientific men of any age have denied the facts of other investigations on a priori grounds of absurdity or impossibility, but the deniers have always been wrong. And this is in defense of spiritualism, which is to say ghosts, haunts, spooks, stuff which is deemed impossible and which, you know, like happens all the time. He's yeah. Like, Yo, assholes, look at this stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way of stating, and I don't know where the, the field of logic is at this point, but the argument from absurdity, right? Like mm -hmm. this, this strikes me a priori as ridiculous. And therefore it is. And that's like how I'm going to structure my argument, right? Like starting from mm -hmm. there. And it's like one of the most fucking common fallacies yeah. that ever happens. And like, totally. Also, 
picked a wager with a flat earther. I'm just going to read this section right here. He, did he really? In 1870, a flat earth proponent named yes! John Hampton offered... Yes! I, I knew we were going to come and yes! talk to bring flat earth into this. We're Fuck doing it. Yes! A oh man! Oh, I just got. Oh, I'm awake. I'm like, I'm trembling now. Uh, don't fall off the edge, man. In 1870, a flat Earth proponent named John Hampton offered a 500 pound wager equal to about 49,000 pounds in present terms in a magazine advertisement to anyone who could demonstrate a convex curvature in a body of water such as a river, canal, or lake. <laughs> Wallace, intrigued by the challenge and short of money at the time, designed an experiment in which he set up two objects along a six-mile stretch of canal. Both objects were at the same height above the water, and he mounted a telescope on a bridge at the same height above the water as well. You shut up. This is literally the end of that flat earth documentary that's on Netflix when seen called through, Beyond the Curve. <laughs> when seen through the telescope, one object appeared higher than the other, showing the curvature of the earth. Oh. The judge for the wager, the editor of Field Magazine, declared Wallace the winner, obvi. But Hamden refused to accept the result. He sued Wallace and launched a campaign which persisted for several years of writing letters to various publications and to organizations of which Wallace was a member, denouncing him as a swindler and a thief. Wallace won multiple libel suits against Hamden, <laughs> but the resulting litigation cost Wallace more than the amount of the wager, oh, no. and the controversy frustrated him for years. Oh my god, he's literally rolling over in his grave right now because not only did that like ruin his fucking life, like winning that bet against a dumbass flat earther, but he, he did nothing to slow down the the momentum of that movement, which is today as as flat as it ever was, you know? <laughs> <laughs> a steady state. Yeah. Uh you're gonna love this one. In the early eighteen eighties, Wallace was drawn into the debate over mandatory smallpox vaccination. Oh my fucking dude! Are we? We really are on a flat Earth, and we're just going around. And it, time is a circle. Wallace originally is saw the circle. issue as a matter of personal liberty, but after studying <sighs> some of the statistics provided by anti-vaccination <laughs> activists, he began to question the efficacy of vaccination. At the time, the germ theory of disease was very new and far from universally accepted. Um, this goes on oh, to dear Lord. basically talk pro-vax stuff. Uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me um, let me guess where you're going next all right mm -hmm. so the next thing is going to be about women and whether or not they have bodily autonomy survey says uh actually a more interesting direction oh because wallace despite being an iconoclast hold on wait a second it's going to be up prayer in schools mm, in a manner of speaking oh, wait a tax exempt status for uh schools that have segregation always suspicious of authority wallace suspected that physicians had a vested interest in promoting vaccination big pharma! it's big pharma <laughs> he's not wrong i mean and became convinced that reductions in the incidence of smallpox that had been attributed to vaccination were in fact due to better hygiene and improvements in public sanitation I mean, it goes on from here. Interesting guy. Uh, uh, and he mm. wrote poetry. Oh. Can you I'm imagine having to out, like but, uh, read a right. Wikipedia about yourself or like summarize yourself in the way that Wikipedia has just summarized this guy's viewpoints? Like, so here's an interesting story. Um, I have some direct experience with that. Not oh. in Wikipedia. Uh, so a, uh, a conceptual artist a few years ago did a project in which he picked a name at random and then searched for... Uh, the leavings of that name throughout the internet and compiled them into a, a document. And the name he picked was Benjamin Kessler. Mm -hmm. And so all of the Benjamin Kesslers that had evidence on the internet at some point over the past, 
you know, however many years internet has existed, um, had whatever public domain stuff of theirs compiled and mashed up into this dude's piece. So, whoa, uh, a bunch of stuff from my old blog, uh, biography pages from places I've worked in the past, along with um, several other Ben Kessler's and their various Facebook pages and Twitter accounts and so on and so forth. Yeah, that one EP that you did with the ukulele. Um, we don't talk about that. Uh, yeah, so I have seen myself and other selves replicated. That's uh, pretty bizarre. I'm... It was cool. So I wrote to the guy. I was like, initially, I was like, God damn it, what the fuck? But yeah. then I was like, no, wait, this is actually a beautiful piece of conceptual art. And, you know, me and these, you know, 18 other dudes have a rare and unique particular appreciation for this that the rest of the population doesn't have because we are the subject as well as the object of the art. Um, and it was really fascinating, you know, viewing in that in that form the multiplicity of self and not self when self yeah. becomes not self um i, I mean, enjoyed it i liked it a lot you could say that his name you and the other kesslers the other benjamins are all intergrades in the subset of kessler right, right. yeah we're all species of so we're all of the ben kessler species there's right. a, a monograph on the ben kessler species yeah. right exactly so you know taxonomically like where's the hybrid vicar at Right. Well, we need to. With that, need I guess something. he was exploring that, wasn't he? Yeah. Well, he was like, you know, I, I wonder which of us was the type specimen. Use our code Kessler to get ten percent <laughs> off your next investment. <laughs> oh man, is it time for an ad break? Yeah, ad break. Let's go to ads. Oh man, so we are sponsored this week by. Um, <laughs> God, let me see Cue here. up the sound. What's the? We gotta have uh, the bumpers on. Yeah, we need a uh, yeah bumper track for this. I don't oh know. man, well, where are we at? going to the Emporium? Um, well, it's, it's another it's another food product. We've got um, Swift brand powdered children um that's swift brand powdered children a modest proposal for breakfast um turn a sandwich into a war crime with powdered children got a testimonial here from uh says here jeffrey e and jeffrey b say we eat children every day now we can snort them uh, powdered children from swift swift brand powdered children <laughs> You know, the nice thing about Powdered Children is, you know, some of the some of the other brands you may be more familiar with, you know, they just use the Adrenal brand, and um, Swift uses the whole head. Yeah, I put it on my popcorn. You know, we're watching some Fear and Loathing. I just spoon it right out of the right out of the can. It's the it's the can that looks like a, a child's head. <laughs> powdered <laughs> Powdered Children. It's like a Ren and Stimpy <laughs> level. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could probably bring it back talking about, um, cause this is the framework for the very conception of species and, uh, and evolution over time. Like these are not neutral ideas. They came from people living in historical context, right. Who had a social existence, their life and bills to pay. Mm. Um, so these notions, these memes were created deliberately to both appease creditors to satisfy individual intellects and aesthetic understandings that were colored by the, the forces, not only of their time, but of their very specific personal experiences. 
Mm. These are not universal truths necessarily. They are versions and perceptions on the world, which hero worship has calcified into formal theorems. Yeah. Like hero worship of like Darwin. Yeah, basically. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder, does the same... Is there the same kind of worship as and calcification happening with um, Wallace as there is with Malthus and Darwin? Yeah. For lefties who are also <laughs> For evolutionary lefties. history so geeks. No. So no know. is the answer uh, because lefties don't have any cultural fucking purchase compared to Elon Musk, you know? No, but like in my own mind, like I look at, I give Wallace a pass on a lot of his, his kookiness because it's also my kookiness. Um, you know, like I, I, I see him as a very sympathetic character, even when I'm like, oh, come on, man, just right. use a goddamn period. But like, I mean, he, he lost a war with a flat earther. So, yeah, there's not too much sympathy in that. <laughs> right. Um, I feel like you would win. Like if you were going to be put up. Well, no, against... no, he did win. It was just the other guy was just like just really obnoxious about it. No, but he kind of lost like ultimately like in life. Oh like, yeah. It plagued he him. Lost. He lost money. Like, I think you would figure out a way. Well, we did say he was a leftist. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that definitely counts as success. Uh, yeah. It's like the wimp, like <laughs> leftists victories, are like victories. the wimplo of the culture war. <laughs> like, yeah. I am bleeding, making me the victor. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I mean, it's like, yeah, when everybody, um, in any position of power is hell-bent on making sure you never get anything you perceive of as just or fair or right or necessary to continued survival of people in a place. Um, yeah, yeah, it's kind of hard to get ahead in life. Yeah. And honestly, if uh, Mr. Wallace hadn't started out with a whole lot, he would not have gotten as far as he did. Yeah. A lot of other people in... Uh, we're talking about here the early through late 1800s with which any of you who listen to Mike Duncan's revolutions podcast know is been, was a very bad time, a very promising time briefly before 1848 for people on the left or uh, the socialist bent in proletarian Europe. And after 1848, a really hard time, mm. uh, at least until the Russians, um, you know, got it together to ax that jackass and his family hmm. and take over the country but uh that was as they say le problematique <laughs> i think that's german for it right <laughs> yeah. that was german for sure cool ladies and gentlemen alfred russell wallace <laughs> man of the people i still haven't found that that his term for it um i'm, I'm probably not going to in frantic search. It was a really right cool eighteenth century sounding word or seventeenth century sounding word. Yeah. Yeah. Just um Alfred Russell Wallace, symbiosis contiguous with evolution, Darwin survival of the individual fittest. Right. There's truth in both of them, but we here at By the Seat of Our Plants podcast Tend to be more Wallaceists than Darwinistists, <laughs> right? And I, I think, I don't know. It there's a test that you can apply to a lot of things that applies here, where mm. um, Darwin's thing can still be true within Wallace's conception, mm -hmm. but Wallace's conception does not exist in Darwin's conception. And that's always like a very revealing mm. 
uh, in terms of the depth and the breadth of two seemingly competing, mm-hmm. you know, ideologies or propositions. Um, Breadth is always a plus, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, it, if it can contain the other thing and not be, not fall to shambles, then you know that that thing's got more legs. I mean, in theory, science is a self-refining discipline because it incorporates anomalies into the core doctrine over time. That, that which is deemed anomalous in one generation is eventually right. explained by theorem and incorporated into the canon and so on and so forth. Now, obviously, uh, the, yeah, ideally, that doesn't happen because scientists are people who live in a historical moment and have economic concerns, material needs. Right. And so what they write and publish and advocate, et cetera, is determined as much by their abstract personal kink for the capital T truth as it is by the need to pay the rent and keep the commissar from chopping their head off. So, you know, take it with a grain. Yeah. Which, you know, you're talking about art or literature. Mm. Sure. You can talk all you want about separating the artist from the art and does the artist's intent determine what the Mm. viewer, blah, blah, blah. You can talk yourself in circles all day long go back and forth about that there's many competing theories that can coexist at the same time a little different when it comes to you know this kind of shit that we're talking about here yeah yeah no it's interesting um yeah all of this reminds me very little of a story that my friend told me about tulip poplar bark baskets she mm. was making so when she got into it she was talking to uh, a bunch of of old timers that she was learning learning the art from and they recognized between five and seven different distinct species of tulip poplar which we know is, is there's only one species of tulip poplar that's recognized that's Dendron tulipifer there's another one in china but it doesn't grow here uh, these old guys who were working with the plants and growing the plants and engaging with the plants all the time recognize seven distinct different varieties or between five and seven distinct varieties. My friend was able to recognize like five, maybe six, um, wasn't quite able to, to distinguish the last. And it was based on texture of bark, the way the bark peeled the season. It was appropriate to, to pull the bark, to make the baskets, mm-hmm. um, you know, how they grew, where they grew, etc. You know, so some of that you could argue is, well, you know, a, a plant that's growing in on the north facing slope is going to grow. It's going to have a different habit than the plant on the south facing slope. And that's right. true. But this is beyond just phenotypic uh, variation. You know, that's variation in the manifestation of an organism's, you know, genetic framework. Um, these are potentially slightly more intense differences between varieties that these old timers were recognizing. But you know, they don't count. This is, uh, this is anecdote, right? If the anecdote is written down in a journal and annotated and reviewed by peers of that realm, then it counts as reality and truth. Uh, and if it's recorded by people who are unlettered and working in the field, it does not count as truth. Right. That has nothing to do with the consistency or the detail or the deliberation of the observation. It has everything to do with the class and culture of the person doing the observations and the person doing the recordings. So when we're talking about and engaging in work with native species, native organisms, native plants, native tulip poplars, 
we kind of need to be careful to not just rely on any one single source of data about the existence, non-existence, characteristics, etc., of the organiza- organisms in question uh, in determining, you know, what is right action for us to do in that place with these other organisms. You know, take the spirit of Wallace, what he was leading into, um, what he could see through a glass darkly, maybe, that the world is not a whole bunch of isolated individuals, you know, competing over dwindling resources, but is in fact this intricate living self. No contraption, no machine, no self-correcting steam governor, but a whole self full of constituent individuals, uh, and yet forming a coherent whole, a community, if you will. Um, So how do we participate in that becomes the question. You know, what types of differentiation do we choose to impose or to recognize for these different selves within the bigger self of whom we are a part ourselves? And some distinctions are useful in certain circumstances other distinctions are useful in other circumstances recognizing one species of tulip poplar is useful in certain circumstances recognizing seven is absolutely essential at other times variations Hmm. yeah it makes me think of how there's like different knowledges on different job sites you know Mm, yeah talk to somebody who has been working on a piece of land for you know, 50 years through 17 different owners. And they've got certain types of knowledge that you're definitely not going to have access to unless you're there on that land with that person, you know, Mm. of the sort of communally held relational interactive knowledge that, you know, has a sort of like procedural language that develops as a shared experience between the people who are participating in, you know, whatever activities are happening on the land Mm -hmm. versus um, something else that's also really useful, which is taxonomy and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, annotated published results and methods, right? Um, Even in that sort of dialectic there between those two things, there's a symbiosis, I think, between those two things. If we don't kind of privilege one over the other for, you know, suspect reasons (laughs) right does that make sense totally yeah more data will probably come in handy at some point or another there's no point in throwing data out because you disdain the source of it right yeah absolutely that seems kind of wasteful and silly and shooting yourself in the foot Uh, particularly when you live in the middle of you know like an extinction event where most of the life you see on a daily basis is at risk of not enduring much beyond the present generation, which is to say most of the organisms you see, you love, you have an intense personal connection to, will die forever from this earth, from this universe. Will you or no? So the degree to which any of us can do anything to forestall that eventuality for some, but not all, of the creatures, plants, fungi, protist, etc., who we love, being able to parse the distinction and recognize those distinctions beyond our formal designations becomes kind of important. If we like tulip poplars and want them to endure beyond this culture, then we should probably not be too elitist about <laughs> our recognition of how many types of them there are in the right. woods. Right. Because it may be that those 
seven different types of tulip poplars are like the multiple different types of wild rice, the elemis that integrate all the time and are themselves separate and have been living in the same place for several million years and thus are kind of used to it and mutually interdependent. So if we want tulip poplars of any description to exist, it may be possible that we need all seven varieties and all seven varieties may have each individual separate requirements. So being able to parse the distinction between them suddenly becomes actually kind of important. Yeah. And so how do you know, how is it that anybody would determine what, is there like a, a, a minimum? Is that like, are you talking about genetic diversity? Like there's a genetic pool between those intergrades that needs to interact in order for there to be stability beyond, you know, our lifetimes? Like what, there's like a minimal, a minimum viable population. For instance? That's the term I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounded very natural. <laughs> Use our code. <laughs> MVP. Uh, become our minimum viable population of supporters. Yeah. Please make a minimum viable donation. <laughs> uh, no, but seriously, please give us your minimum or your maximum for uh, sustainable population. I'm not very good at this. Money is not like tulip poplars. You don't need at least seven dollars in your bank account. So if you have seven, give us six. Or seven of them, because maybe there's more. Yeah, and, you know, that's really just your bank account is an observer effect anyways, so. Yeah, we're all a community and... Manifest some more. Yeah. When uh, we can actually receive it, I feel like it's going to have a different tone when we ask for it. Yeah. When there's actually, like, an avenue for people to give it. Why is it so hard to ask for money when you're actually broke? <laughs> yeah, when well, you, you have know. money, you're like... Oh, well, you got it all figured out. It's like, you know... You, Give us your dough. We've got a Patreon, probably. <laughs> yeah. Depends on when you're listening to this, really. Because if you're listening to this five years from now, we probably have a Patreon. Yeah. Or had a Patreon. Yeah. I think it's become Metatron now. Yeah. Um, That's it, the one that turns into a truck, right? Yeah. It's with like the, a four-dimensional With the time traces and, yeah. and the flaming sword. Uh-huh. The eyes. Yeah. And the wings covering the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm... Uh, that was... A bit of an awkward throw, but I am interested in talking about the minimum viable population. Yeah, so extinction. We're in an extinction. How does extinction happen, right? You know, putting it simply, it's, you know, when the organisms who are members of a species, which is an arbitrary type that we would ascribe to a group of people in place, non-human people, sometimes human people, can't make any more of themselves at a certain point. So... A number of factors lead to the reduction of a population size to a point where it could be wiped out basically by bad luck, uh, what they call the stochasticity, the stochastic element. Hmm. So, you know, say the people in question you're talking about are a population of tulip poplars on a hillside. If there's a mudslide, boom, they all get swamped and they all die. No more tulip poplars there. If there's a bunch of extremely hungry uh, locusts or something, come through and eat them all, boom, same thing. Uh, if there's a plague that affects that particular group of tulip poplars, boom, all gone. Oh, man, this is brutal, dude. You're yeah. fucking up these tulip poplars. Yeah, they're just getting just getting mowed. If there's some asshole who wants to build a hill on a, on this slope and or just like wants the view, right, is going to cut him down. He's going to put a driveway in. Yeah, boom, no more tulip poplars, mm. right, uh, et cetera, et cetera. If it gets dry for like 15 years straight and they've got nothing to drink. No more tulip poplars, etc. There's, I mean, you can come up with worst case scenarios 
Um, I just got so fucking depressed. <laughs> All yeah. those lists of reasons why things can die. If you're having trouble staying up at night, uh, you know, just think of reasons. Just count think the of ways. ways that populations can uh, can succumb. Starvation, thirst. Yeah, uh, suburbanization, being consumed by other things. Yeah, gentrification, uh, etc. Like. Whatever. So all that shit can happen to any population. But if that's not the only population, then uh, in the cold logic that believes that one thing of a certain nominal type, which we call Liriodendron tulipifera, as if that name means fucking anything, uh, is as good as any other. In which case, eh, fucking build your driveway there. We don't really care. But if that's the last, then uh, uh, no more Liriodendron of any type. So... How does the population get to that small size to begin with? So there's two, there's two elements to that. There's inbreeding, what they call inbreeding depression. So, you know, think about the Habsburg uh, nobility, or basic, which is basically all of the monarchs in Europe at this point, Oof. Uh, with their hemophilia and their weird-ass noses and lips and their manias and <laughs> psychological strangeness, all those seizures, club feet, all that kind of stuff. Um, that's ableist. I shouldn't say that. That's you know whatever. You've got you've got legs that look like whatever. That's cool. Uh, it doesn't mean you're a Habsburg. Um, <laughs> you know, and just because you were born a Habsburg, right? Like you know, we played the card we're dealt. You know, you're not inherently an evil bastard if you're born into the nobility. Uh, you're trained to be that way. So you know, yeah, and it's also baked into your genetics, and it's irreversible, and you couldn't possibly absolve it. So fuck you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Malthus. Can't have it both ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, divine... Once again, disproving his own fucking theory. Yep. Uh, divine right of kings. No, that's in, I mean, that's entirely in line with uh, Dr. Malthus. Was he a doctor? Mm, probably not. Hmm. Did they even have those back then? Um, I feel like being a doctor in the time of the steam engine was as easy as like having a the right kind of hat and the right kind of spectacles you know yeah just you know bleed people at the right time you know they were kind of you know, it was just bleeding just as much i was at that just point. just bleeding man that's all it was yeah, talking about humors and stuff actually yeah. malaises yeah open the windows <laughs> close the windows i should knock that actually i mean there is a fair amount of like old medieval medicine that um you know was legit useful that was kind of thrown out with the general anti-religious sentiment that um characterized uh scholastic science at the time which was originally a sect of christianity um, mm, yeah that, that we can we can talk about the history of science at some point that's a fascinating story, that's actually. actually a really good thing that we could talk about because um, that that whole process of the various babies getting thrown out with different quantities of bath water, you know, like or eaten, yeah, um, yeah, or we, powdered. We don't, we don't <laughs> yep, uh, Swift brand powdered babies. <laughs> oh, <laughs> feels so good. Um, yeah, no, we don't think about, uh, we don't talk about science as a religious sect, but it absolutely is. It has, if we're going to look at it in a historical context, how does a population get to the point where it gets ex extinctified? So the minimum viable population is basically the smallest group of critters or people or whoever in a place that can make more critters or human or people and absorb most types of disaster that are likely to befall them. 
there is a lot of hand waving associated with coming up with these figures. Mm. Um, and as a result, it's proven to be an extremely fertile ground for writing papers and predicting things and so on, because there is grant money in them, our hills, mm. uh, which is fine. Cause it's actually a lot of useful stuff has come out of this to help those of us who, you know, give a damn about non-human people and places they live to ascertain, you know, what we've got to do to protect land that is under threat of being carved up into Airbnbs and subdivisions and whatever, as well as take land back from places that have been, you know, already rendered uninhabitable by, you know, parking lots and highways and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, or super fun sites or that sort of thing. So there's all sorts of of interesting variations on the theme of minimum viable population, including the minimum viable metapopulation, which is the number of okay. minimum viable populations that will sustain the species in a given broader area. Right. So that's like population of populations. Yeah, exactly. Huh. That sounds yeah. like <laughs> some shit that would be in Song of Solomon, you know? <laughs> Like that's what God's population would be. It would be the population of populations. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. Sorry. Hey, I'm going to describe a diagram here. Um, figure 12.1 extinction vortex. Population size decreases in a positive feedback loop, eventually resulting in the extinction of the population. And it, it says lower effective population size. And there's a number of uh, box outs in all caps that feed into it. Wow. Vortex, extinction vortex. That's really... This is kind of the idea that like it's going to trigger like a, a cascading chain reaction type of thing. Yeah, sometimes it might be described as a maelstrom, other times as a, as a sort of a whirlpool. Mm. Uh, either way, there is a, a helical element to it. Some might call it a tornado. <laughs> if there are sharks in it, a sharknado. <laughs> if there are bears, bears in a tornado. <laughs> These are the various types of extinction. Uh, environmental variation, catastrophic events, and global climate change. Those are the three things. Oh, so you're, you're describing this graph to us, right? describing this graph, but, yeah. And it's a helix? Uh, no, some it's, sort it's of vortex? A, it's a vortex of some sort. There's a, there's a lot of arrows. Well, like eight, but... And we've um, got different things feeding the vortex, feeding is that? the vortex, yeah. yeah. So these are exterior, exterior factors like environmental variation, catastrophic effects, habitat destruction environmental degradation, habitat fragmentation, over-harvesting, which mm. is to say taking what you aren't fucking given, uh, being selfish, effects of invasive species. Mm, debatable. Talk about that later. Uh, yeah, invasive species. That's like a whole episode. That's a, that's a loaded term. Um, lower effective population size, which means, you know, greater potential of reaching minimum, of bottoming out on your minimum viable population. And then there's a series of circling arrows with other other terms going into it one is more demographic variation which means something the other is population more subdivided by fragmentation so that means that there's smaller individual clumps of individuals right Right, which fragmentation was one of the other things that was already feeding into the vortex right yeah this is this is a little bit redundant in the way that it is well i guess i mean it's like they're kind of feeding into each other right yeah 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 in a in a in a sort of redundant way uh, more inbreeding or depression. Uh, so inbreeding is like, you know, again, the Habsburg thing where you just have like, you know, eight dudes who are king, you know, all have all been king of Sicily at one time or another. And they're all just in a big old cuddle puddle. And, you know, their child uh, gets to an inherit Bohemia. Um, that's inbreeding. 
and it's very bad if you're a tree. Uh, more genetic drift or less ability to adapt, and that's like native ours, right? We haven't even talked about those yet. That's when uh, human beings don't really like nature, and so they want to make what they see look more like what's in their imaginations, and so they're like, that milkweed could look really cool if it was bright pink and had tiny leaves and smelled like lavender instead of milkweed. Let's force breed these organisms together until they produce something that looks cool to us and then we'll sell that all over the place what the fuck and we'll just do that because it looks cool and you know fuck nature it's green furniture um, well, what is the difference between that and an invasive species uh, invasive species are able to fend for themselves and take ground that has not been seeded by native species but a so, native art probably has to be coddled and... Oh, yeah, they suck. I yeah. mean, they're, they're no, generally... No physical, no, like, right. fitness. But the problem is, if that the parents of that native are another milkweed, like the wild milkweeds in the area, those pet milkweeds will basically breed out, and they'll you'll end up with wild milkweeds who adopt the characteristics of, you know, dumbass leaves and shitty flowers or no nectar that the bees can feed on or whatever. Right. You know, the stuff that looks pretty but is basically totally fucking useless when it comes time to actually living in a place. And so you end up with that's uh genetic drift, right? Oh, okay. That's, that's, so that's a type what, of genetic drift right. anyway. Okay. Interesting. And we'll check back in on that later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's the less, that's the adaptive, uh, that is maladaptive adaptivity. <laughs> Scratch that. <laughs> no, maladaptive is a great word. Um, but yeah, no, that's a, uh, it's hard. It's hard to say that genetic though. Drift. Yeah. It's really hard to say that without stepping into a little bit of like eugenics, race science stuff, you know? Really? Um, I was really hoping to elide that entirely. Yeah, no, I know. It's hard to get, <laughs> it's hard to just, just step right around that. Uh, yeah. But I mean, we're talking about Darwin already, so. That's true. I mean, Malthus the father of race science. Yeah. yeah. Well, Malthus was really the father of race science and Darwin was put up as the excuse for no really it's real this time guys for sure yeah check it out this other guy verified it right uh, we're all actually monkeys but those people are more like monkeys than we are mm -hmm. no really see um, how that's many why it's cool if we take their stuff and um put it in the museum yeah yeah hmm. well we can still you know or we can just acknowledge that it's fucking weird and it's hard yeah. to talk about and maybe dedicate some more time to it at a later point. I think so. I mean, yeah. it's, it's worth talking about again, because like these ideas, you know, the, the scientific principles on which we base an enormous chunk of the worldview and the, the vocabulary, which exists to discuss wild plants and animals, a big part of the worldview that has framed through vocabulary and basic principles the discussion of wild nature comes from you know social historical economic circumstance not neutral mm -hmm. science doesn't exist in a vacuum you know we have to contend with the rapacity excused by formal colonial justifications blatant classism of which racism is a form, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to justify the rightness of gentlemen scholars to maintain their status as gentlemen and write monographs instead of getting a real damn job. That's the foundation of the language which we now have to describe how organisms live, thrive, 
fail to thrive in a place. So mm. it's worth looking at where that comes yeah. from. What you're saying is, I think, encapsulated in a forward saying that I live mm. by and have lived by for a while, which is Linnaeus is a bitch. I mean, we'll say it's not a bad idea to have a universal form of nomenclature to describe other organisms you see that is common to people around the world. It's a little silly that it's dumb, poorly conjugated Latin with maybe some misspelled Greek in there, too. <laughs> yeah. Montanical uh, <laughs> Latin. Like, I've, I find it a little silly that, like, scientific Latin is considered, you know, a mark of, of high culture or whatever. Because it's, it's so dumb. It's not grammatically correct like it, uh, it bugs me a little it shouldn't because it's you know it's, whatever, it's, arbitrary, it's just but... it's just like you put latin words mm -hmm. like not latin the language at all just latin words that you got from a vocab and you put them into a stew pot with a bunch of dudes who looked at plants and had money and then you end up with botanical latin you know I mean, I, maybe I wouldn't mind it so much if it was conjugated right, or like you had, you know, because by the way, if it made sense in terms of Latin. Yeah. Because like genus species, like that's not a, you know, if you're looking for something that's going to work for, well, work well enough, I guess, for literally every type of organism on earth, which, you know, some problems right there. Plants are different than animals. Some plants are very different than other plants. Fungi are their own whole weird fucking clusterfuck. Um, don't even get me started on protists, right? So, but you're yeah, trying to get something yeah. that's consistent for everything because you're one of these meticulous one-size-fits-all, uh, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. That, that it's a fine project. It. It's a fine project to Whatever. undertake. Do your yeah. thing, you know, you, uh, a first a first name and a last name for everything as an index. Sure, why not? Um, can be helpful. You know, for God's sake, you know, Greek to Greek, Latin to Latin, you know, or just pick one language. Maybe we can do it in Chinese. I don't know. Like something that makes sense. It could be, be nice. anything. It reminds me of like when kids make up their own language mm. and they just like take the alphabet and they're like, instead of K, I'm going to say M. Instead of M, I'm going <laughs> to say E, you know, and it's just a fucking substitution cipher. And it does make sense, but it's, it's not smart. It's not based in grammar or like the cultural significance of either of the language, any of the languages that it's borrowing from. Yeah. You know, it's like, it makes sense on its own terms and that's it. And that's fine. It works. But Elemis glabrofloris, one type of Elemis that has uh, smooth flowers. Okay, fine. That works. That helps. Elemis that's helpful. Magregorii, an Elemis that is multiple McGregors. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah. Magregorius. Like, you know, yes, I know it's a dude's name and that's, yeah. but, also, a really dumb way of recognizing, distinguishing one type of organism from another. Um, you know, I get like, you know, yeah. primary naming, you know, the first name is the one that gets carried because I guess you got to have some sort of organizing factor, but naming it after just like some dude, that's the least interesting facet of this organism's existence. One could say that it's actually not a facet of the organism's existence at all oh good point <laughs> indeed it's indeed. almost like it's a facet of that guy's existence that he huh you're saying that conor mcgregor has <laughs> nothing to do with this grass growing in my backyard no no i'm not saying nothing 
there's probably a connection and that's probably you know gonna be on our next ep- patreon only episode so please subscribe <laughs> <laughs> learn all about conor mcgregor's wild rye for as little as five thousand dollars <laughs> damn it <laughs> that's where i was going with that <laughs> you too can be one of our top donors <laughs> this uh this podcast is brought to you by proper 12 whiskey <laughs> and the ufc <laughs> pay us enough money we'll fight on air <laughs> with another podcast <laughs> Yeah, well, I feel like there's a little bit more to talk about with the minimum. Yeah, I, I, I would love to, to dig into the minimum viable meta populations in particular. Yeah, that was... That's actually... Uh, one, because it has an awesome fucking acronym, and that's the minimum amount of suitable habitat, which is MASH. Ooh. And that's, that's legitimately useful, because what you're talking about there is, like, how many different little postage stamps of land that hasn't been churned into fucking olive gardens and uh, tract homes uh not tract homes i shouldn't hate on those so yeah like in the little tiny piece of of fucking hell strip grass that has not been completely consumed how many of those do you need to not have anything living in there go extinct that's the mash the minimum amount of suitable habitat mm. it's uh, a great for acronym instance, yeah. for a really fucking depressing thing to think about ha it is. It's like, I want to say mash because it's fun to say and think about, mm-hmm. but what it means makes me want to lie down and not get up. Well, the, <laughs> <laughs> the positive is like, you know, if we don't do anything, nothing will be done. And, and, uh, you know, we're basically playing a gamble against the, uh, the capstone of this economic system, which artificially props up this mode of, mm-hmm. of architecture and space and habitation. So, you know, we're gambling against a political revolution or, um, you know, complete economic shortfall, but, you know, economic shortfalls are controlled to some degree by those who benefit from them, Mm -hmm. um, you know, or really the, the hard limits ecologically of things like food and water, which sustain the actual people who physically make the decisions of, uh, how land is allocated and who gets to own it and who doesn't have a say in what gets done with it. Mm. So just waiting on all of the above basically means a whole lot of triage. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like the only reasonable response to our overall climate situation triage. at this point, right? Like triage, like we're not, we're not going to stop it. We're not going to fix it. Oh, good heavens. No, no, but we're, we have the ability to mitigate some of it make it less bad uh honestly to be blunt and you know maybe you know full-on doomer i suppose i don't think we're even gonna survive it as a Mm. culture certainly not no the cultural no as a species probably not but it doesn't mean that we can have that we are incapable of having any impact of benefit whatsoever on future generations of the other organisms mm. who we still love and regard as beautiful and worthy of existence in their own right. You know, we're not the only people on earth of merit. Yeah, definitely There's not. A ton we can do in the meantime to support those minimum viable populations, maybe make them a little more than minimal um, to create you know, to bolster, uh, to bring up to minimum those populations which are below the minimum uh, and to support those populations which are hovering around the edge 
to the extent that they've got a better head start when things eventually settle down, which, you know, they will. Things move in fits and starts. Right. But like increasing the meta populations, essentially. Yeah. Right? Like Exactly. The number of minimum viable populations and the, the habitats and things and, and the genetic pools that will allow some sort of descendant to survive through, right? Absolutely. And that work doesn't always look like literally planting trees in the ground. I mean, that's one thing you do in one generation, which has no guarantee in and of itself of sustenance or success beyond that point. Um, but it could look like, uh, so like for in, in Virginia, for instance, there is a, a formal type of uh, legal land allotment called a agricultural forestal district. Uh, which is a voluntary moratorium on land subdivision that also grants signatories to that certain veto power over municipal projects that would affect that land, like, say, cell phone towers or road construction yeah. or pipelines. Kind of like a like trust that. or something. Something, yeah, it's like a community trust. Yeah. Um, but it's decided communally by all signatories to the one um, agricultural forestal district. So you can set up an ag forestal district so long as you meet certain minimum total area requirements. And you can do that if you've got a couple fruit trees in your yard or a vegetable garden. Like you don't need many acres to your name in order to begin to incept one of these things. Mm. So, you know, there's all sorts of political means to protect land from getting fucked, you know, to save a lot of unnecessary verbiage that has the knock-on effect of preserving all of those organisms that are already living there and who you don't see living there because they are living in seeds in the seed bank right. that were there when the land was pasture before it was turned into farmland, was turned into housing tracts, and so on and so forth. So, you know, there's all sorts of things you can do crab-wise to assist in the sustenance of any one species lineage, however you formally designate it, down the line, long past your eventual uh, death by Mad Max bandit or whatever, <laughs> you know, you can have a positive legacy no matter how dire the immediate concerns might be for your own people and culture. And I think we need to maybe think about parsing that distinction when we look to um, a salvific notion of the future. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I really appreciate that look forward and, and the stance from which you're looking. And I, I think I agree with you too, that our survival is definitely not guaranteed, not very likely a risky bet at best in terms of mitigation. Um, you know, I, it's really hard to predict the future, but I do have a sense that, you know, ours probably is not the last generation. Hmm. I, I think we'll probably have have the opportunity to mitigate the effects of our impact here in a way that enables other generations to engage in projects like you were just describing. Mm. Definitely not uh, not trying to center the human experience in terms of <laughs> climate mitigation, you know? Yeah, like Totally. I think to the degree to which we succeed, it's the degree to which we internalize, you know, what Alfred Russell Wallace absorbed from 
let's not discount them, his porters and guides in Indonesia, right? Like Hmm. the dude was not alone. The ideas he came up with were not his. They were a joint effort of everybody on the boat that got him there, everybody who carried his luggage, everybody who cooked him supper, everybody who put up his tent and put out fresh slippers for him in the morning, which actually a lot of that stuff Alfred did for himself. Slipper thing sounds nice. I would like to have somebody put out, like, what does that mean, fresh slippers? Uh, yeah. I think there was some dude who walked into the jungles of Borneo with Slipper. 18 pairs of slippers. No, but, like, so the idea of, of feeling consilience with the place, you know, the degree mm-hmm. to which Wallace was able to have enough of his wits about him to listen to the people around him. Um, you know, the time that he was in Borneo, Borneo was this whole nested series of kingdoms and principalities and nations of lots of different governmental structures many of them egalitarian especially in the the country's interior or the island's interior where he spent a lot of his time and where he developed his notions of symbiosis and collective evolution you know i look at these things and i gotta think like there's a degree to which this is very not european Hmm. not hierarchical you know, in the same way that like Carl Jung's idea of the collection, collective unconscious came directly from his experience in the Haida Gwaii, mm-hmm. right? From speaking with, you know, indigenous North American folks, not just from out of his own imagination. Right. It's credited yeah. to him because, you know, that's our, our system of accreditation, you know, is distinct from Darwin, who remained kind of racist all the time. <laughs> so the mouth is stuck, right? So if there's a survival strategy for us, I think it's to basically take a cue from from mr wallace and maybe i'm being too kind to his memory in illustrating this point it's the point i want you to remember not the man to look at yourself not as an individual separate from the whole world inherently valuable only in terms of your own particular triumphs and qualities but as a member of a of a history of a community of a place of an ecosystem individually we come we go collectively we change over time we're affected by one another. We together adapt. Yeah. There's something to that. Yeah. Just like the um, self-governing centrifugal um, element of a steam engine, you know? Yeah. We, uh, I don't know, move. I don't know what those things do. <laughs> Sorry. I was trying to tribute to your guy Wallace there <laughs> with his self-governing. His self-governing uh, centrifugal steam engine. No. no. It's the idea of there being a uh, some sort of force that shapes but you know as wallace dictated it it was not necessarily an intentional force you know being a pretty avid atheist he was not looking at some sort of a big papa deity figure that intelligently designs how things ought to be it was more in kind of a taoist sense of there being a pattern that stretches beneath things which defies articulation but which nevertheless obtains in its absence Hmm. wow that's um I'm really glad you said that because I was completely hung up on how arcane that analogy had been. And I I kind of missed the point of it, but that's actually kind of beautiful. Mm. And honestly, I feel like that could be, that's a good place to end it. You know, like it's a pretty good place to wrap things up, right? Sounds good to me. Yeah. Cause I mean, a governor on a steam engine is that which sets the pace. Right. Yeah. And if we're anything, we've learned anything from Wallace, it's that we need to respect the centrifugal self-governor. Um, yeah of time yeah uh which has now balanced out 
ambivalently and, mm. you know, in a patternistic way, mm. the duration of this episode. Would you describe this as a sort of, what was the name of that ridiculous imaginary organism that the dude had? <laughs> this is our Scoobius Pip. <laughs> so this is sweet. Thank you to everybody for listening and joining us here for this conversation. We will be coming back at you pretty soon. We are By the Seat of Our Plants podcast, brought to you by Little Blue Stem Collective and Virginia Organizing, recorded here at Grayface Studios with Ben and Ben. Malthus. I said a bottom of your butt. Come on, I said a bottom of your butt. Oh, deep in your butt. Oh, away way of your butt. Up your butt.